So we are in the uh, first um, chapter about Sotapanna. This is chapter 16. And <clears throat> But uh, before we um, carry on with the, the readings, the last readings of this chapter, um, I thought I'd mentioned the other day about the different kinds of anagamis and the um, image that the Buddha came up with of the um, uh, shard of red-hot iron broken off a... Um, a heated uh, bowl, and so uh, just for interest's sake, I thought I'd uh, read these out. This is uh, one of the examples of the Buddha coming up with a, uh, an extraordinary image. Why he came up with uh, sort of uh, imagery of a blacksmith's shop um, talking about this is uh, not very clear. But it's called it's uh, Sutta number fifty-five in the Book of the Sevens in the Anguttara. It's called The Destinations of Persons. So it's talking about the different kinds of, of anagami or, or non-returners. Uh, because I'll teach you the seven destinations of persons and the attainment of Nibbāna through non-clinging. Listen and attend closely. I will speak. Uh, yes, Bhante, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. And what bhikkhus are the seven destinations of persons? <clears throat> Here a bhikkhu is practicing thus. And then he, there's this fairly cryptic statement, uh, which Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a very extensive note on, which you can look up if you like. Um, and the reflection is, it might not be, and it might not be mine. It will not be, it will not be mine. I am abandoning what exists, what has come to be. That's the reflection. So, <clears throat> but, uh, someone uh, is reflecting in that way. And he obtains equanimity. He is not attached to existence. He's not attached to origination. He sees with correct wisdom. There is a higher state that is peaceful. Yet he has not totally realized that state. He has not totally abandoned the underlying tendency to conceit. He has not totally abandoned the underlying tendency to lust for existence. He has not totally abandoned ignorance. With the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbana in the interval. So uh, those are the, the characteristics of a, of a non-returner um, rather than an arahant. So uh, abandon the underlying tendency to conceit, so uh, asmimana. It's not, uh, not totally abandoned, asmimana or um, uh, bhavaraga or, 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 or udacha or to um, uh, ignorance, avijja. Uh, those, uh, uh, but the five lower fetters have been completely let go of. And then the Buddha use, starts to use this example of the, of the iron bowl. For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly off and be extinguished. So too, a bhikkhu is practicing thus, and repeats that whole passage. He has not totally abandoned ignorance. With the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbāna in the interval. So that is after the ending of uh, one human life and before the reappearance in the... Um, Sudavasa in one of the uh, the pure abodes, then uh, uh, arahantship is realized sort of between lives, and that's what it means in the uh, uh, attaining an attainer of nibbana in the interval. And again, Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a very extensive um, commentary and notes about that, and the different translations have interpreted that, that in different ways. But you have three of these different varieties of of realization of uh, enlightenment uh, in the sort of between life states. 
This is probably not something that concerns most of us on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's the kind of the imagery I find that so so that you have the the iron the red hot iron bowl that, that's struck with a, a hammer, and then a chip flies off. And as soon as the chip of, of iron flies off, then it becomes cool. So even as it breaks off the bowl, then it becomes cool right away. And the second one, the, the wording is is pretty much the same. And then he says. Um, He's not totally abandoned the underlying tendency to conceit, not totally abandoned the underlying tendency to lust for existence. He's not totally abandoned ignorance. With the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbana in the interval. For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly off, rise up, and be extinguished. So the first one is just as soon as it's struck, it breaks off, then it goes cold. This rises up and then goes cold as it sort of in mid-flight. Then the third one, he says, uh, for example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly off, rise up, and be extinguished just before it lands on the ground. So that uh, this is um, sort of rising up, and then just before it hits the ground, then it becomes cool before it lands. So that's another one. So those three kinds are those who realize uh, uh, total enlightenment in the between-lives state. Then the fourth one is, uh, <clears throat> for example, when an iron bowl, so it becomes, uh, with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbana upon landing. So that's on the, the, the experience of, of birth or, or reappearance in the pure abodes because the beings in the Suddhavasa, they don't get born from bodies, they just spontaneously appear. Very easy way of being born. And so at birth, at appearance, they, they realize enlightenment, upon, as he says, upon landing. For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might be produced and fly up, and upon landing on the ground it would be extinguished. So as soon as it hits the ground, so too, because practicing thus with the utter destruction of five lower fetters, it becomes an attainer of Nibbana upon landing. And the fifth one um, says, uh, with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, it becomes an attainer of Nibbana without exertion. For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly up, fly off, rise up, and fall on a small pile of straw or sticks. There it would produce a fire and smoke, but when it was exhausted, that small pile of straw or sticks, if it gets no more fuel, it would be extinguished. So too, uh, with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbana without exertion. But uh, any sensible blacksmith would not have straw or anything burnable on the floor of their... So it's a slightly flawed analogy in that respect. But anyway, nobody's perfect. So then number six is um, then the... Uh, uh, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbana through exertion. So the first one is without exertion, then this next one is with exertion. For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly off, rise up, and then fall upon a wide pile of straw or sticks. There it will produce fire and smoke. But when it has exhausted that wide pile of straw or sticks, if it got no more fuel, it would be extinguished. So to a bhikkhu practicing thus, with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, becomes an attainer of Nibbana through exertion. So that would mean that within the um, uh, having be, uh, appeared in the uh, Suddhavasa, then they st that being still has to exert some kind of effort in the practice in order to realize enlightenment. So that 
the, rather, the previous one, as soon as they appear, then they reach arahantships. This one is during that life in the, uh, in the Suddhavasa, and they, they have to exert themselves in the practice. And then the seventh one, the last one, uh, <clears throat> uh, he has not totally abandoned ignorance, etc. With the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes one bound upstream, heading towards the Akanita realm. And the um, I think that's the the highest of the five Sudavasa. Let me just check that. Fifteen. Bhikkhu Bodhi does absolutely wonderful and thorough and useful notes. Um, so I do recommend, even if you're one who's allergic to footnotes, these are very very useful and good. So this uh, um, this one <coughs> refers to quote unquote the most sluggish of the five classes of non-returners who proceed upward through successive pure abodes to the highest one called the Akanita. This type two is mentioned to show the coarseness the coarsest who still retain the fetters of rebirth but more acute classes of non-returners also retain these fetters. So that this particular kind of non-returner, they uh, have several lifetimes through the different Sudavasa, um, and so that they are reborn a, a few times in the pure abodes, and then finally when they make it to the, the highest of the five pure abodes, then they realize enlightenment in that, in that particular realm. And then the image with the iron bowl is... For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly off, rise up, and then fall upon a large pile of straw or sticks. There would, it would produce a fire and smoke, and when it has exhausted that large pile of straw or sticks, it would burn up a, a woods or a grove until it reaches the edge of a field, the edge of a road, the edge of a stone mountain, the edge of water, or some delightful piece of land. And then, if it got no more fuel, it would be extinguished. So to a bhikkhu practicing thus, with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, becomes one bound upstream, heading towards the Akanita realm. These bhikkhus are the seven destinations of persons. The, uh, the Buddha is uh, um, amazing uh, in his uh, range of imagination. And why? And maybe he was talking to someone who used to be a, uh, a metal worker or a blacksmith or, uh, in, in using that imagery, but um, it's just uh, one of those examples of suddenly coming up with a whole string of images that all sort of relate in a very um, sequential and thorough way just sort of in uh, and but also illustrating something like the, the you know different kinds of non-returners yes sister Uh, that's a good question. Crossed my mind as well, <laughs> but I, my my understanding is that there's the um, there's already the the karmic force for so the being uh, that being being born in the um, uh, in the Sudavasa, in the pure abodes, and so because you have effect, effectively you have like three that are become arahants along the way, and so you think, well, why would they need to be born at all? But it's like. Uh, uh, well, it's the image that comes to mind is there's this current that uh, is uh, <clears throat> still uh, having its effect, the sort of current of, of attachment and identification that's still carrying the consciousness um, at the end of that human life. 
and so that um, that just as the our, our current human birth, you know, there, there's a there's a, a jivita, there's the life force, there's a sort of current of kama and vipaka that keeps us alive. We don't just suddenly disappear. Um, like a, a a human being, when they realize arahantship, they don't suddenly evaporate, right? Because the life force and the 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 the, the uh, nature of the body is such that the life carries on. So, my understanding is there's there's some kind of subtle uh, clinging and attachment that is there at the end of that that human life, when they realize the the level of a non-returner, and that still has its effect. But uh, it uh, for one who say the say the those those first three it's um it uh the potential for enlightenment is so strong that then they realize our hardship even before they've arrived at the next birth that's how i understand it okay so let's go back to chapter uh, 16 here so we had just had uh, king ajata satu uh, not realizing stream entry because of the karmic effects of having killed King Bimbisara. Ajahn Pasna then goes on to say, The Eightfold Path, which is equated with the stream, is often characterized as being composed of three trainings, virtue, concentration, or the higher mind, and wisdom. In this next example, there's a relationship drawn between the trainings and the penetration of the goal. If the factors of the path are fulfilled partially, one is able to realize stream entry. If you, fulfill, if you fulfill them more completely, you'll reach the higher attainments. For stream entry, full accomplishment in virtue is necessary, but only partial accomplishment in concentration and wisdom. That might be comforting to uh, some of us. So full accomplishment in virtue is necessary. So, um, and again, going back to some of the different ways that stream entry is, is defined, so uh, complete faith in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and then the um, uh, perfection of the sila. Uh, is, uh, those four qualities are, are uh, uh, say, comprise the uh, characteristics of a stream enterer. But as, as it says here, uh, full, uh, only partial accomplishment in concentration and wisdom is, is uh, necessary. And then the first uh, passage to quote from is in the Book of the Threes, and this is uh, Venerable Nyanaponika and uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi translating. O monks, the more than 150 training rules that come up for recitation every fortnight, in which young men desiring the goal train themselves, are all contained in these three trainings. What three? The training in the higher virtue, the training in the higher mind, the training in the higher wisdom. These are the three trainings in which the more than 150 training rules are all contained. Here monks a monk is one fully accomplished in virtue, but only moderately accomplished in concentration and wisdom. He infringes some of the lesser and minor training rules and rehabilitates himself. Why is that? Because monks, this is not said to be impossible for him. But as to those training rules that are fundamental to the, to the holy life, in conformity with the holy life, in these his virtue is stable and steady, and he trains himself in the training rules he has undertaken. With the utter destruction of three fetters, he becomes a stream enterer, one no longer subject to rebirth in the lower world, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. 
Then there are comparable sections for the Sakadagami, Anagami, and Arahant, with increasing refinement, according to the fetters relinquished, as explained in the suttas earlier in this section. And finally, the passage from the sutta says, Thus, monks, one who is partly accomplished achieves partial success, one who is fully accomplished achieves full success. But these training rules are not barren, I declare. So this also, this the same teaching is given when there's a, a one a monk comes to the Buddha and says, you know, Venerable Sir, I'm really depressed and I'm, I'm at a loss of what to do because we have these training rules. Uh, uh, and again, he says more than 150 uh, rules that we are supposed to uh, we, uh, to remember and that come up for recitation every fortnight, and I can't remember them. My my, my memory is so poor that uh, I I can't uh, possibly recite all these training rules. I I can't remember them. You know, my my uh, my brain is not uh, good enough to to recollect all of those. And then the Buddha says, "Well, can you remember three uh, three trainings rather than 150?" And then he says, "I think so. <laughs> yes, yes, I can." And then he says the um, the training in the higher virtue, adisila sikasikitaba, and then the training in the higher mind, adichita sikitaba, and then the training in the higher wisdom, adipanya sikasikitaba. And he says, if you can remember those three, then you're covered. Don't don't worry about it. And so um, that's always been the case that some people have uh, good memory faculties and some people do not. But that's never been a uh, and a sort of radical obstruction to the to the holy life if uh, if uh, you're not able to remember long strings of of Pali. The the training rules for uh, the at least the I did the cal- a little calculation on the monks' training rules, the 227 that we recite uh, every fortnight, and that's about 13,000 words that you have to recite. Um, not everybody has to, but uh, at least one monk has to recite it. Nuns do yours in English. There's a little bit more brief, about 150 training rules. Not far from 16, if I count them. How much? 160. 160, okay. So, um, so it's quite a memorization that one has to do, um, but that's not just because your mind can't remember, it's not necessarily an obstruction to, to liberation. Uh, <coughs> And also, when you uh, you come across the, the many and various stories of the enlightened nuns, enlightened monks in the Terigata, Terigata, there's a whole variety of different capacities and characteristics that that uh, that people have, and um, that some are, are more gifted than, uh, than others in different areas, and some are very ungifted. But um, the the um, uh, the different um, characteristics don't necessarily obstruct. Enlightenment, as will come in some of the other later readings. There's even uh, the famous ins- uh, occasion of Sarakani, who was a, a, a drunk, an alcoholic, that the Buddha declared to be a stream enterer uh, before he passed away. We'll get to Sarakani later on. When, um, not remembering the rules in those days, in those, in those times, was much more difficult for them because they don't remember the rule, maybe some people here, but we can always go back to the books and we can always read them back and so on. So that for them must have been a very different thing. Well, the the teacher-student relationship, the Acharya and the Sadiviharika, is a very strong bond and so that a person would be 
so over the, uh, at least over the first five years, a person would always have their acharya or acharini to, to refer to. So they'd say, what's that twelfth rule? Um, I know we're really not supposed to do something with that. And what, what, did, uh, what, what was it? You know, and then the acharya would, would explain or would sort of go over it again so that then they would have a reference point. Also the other friends that, uh, that they would be able to, to uh, uh, say, you've got a good memory, can you, <laughs> can you uh, tell me what this one is? And so forth. So that that, uh, and I think because it was also a non-literate society, there was there was very very little <coughs> writing of any kind. Just the way that information would be passed and would be would be um, sort of transmitted between people, we would be retained it was very different from what we have nowadays. We're we're very um, uh, yeah. The, there's so much information available. It's almost even reading is a bit of a, a luxury nowadays. People. I know a few people say, I don't really read now, I just sort of, I, I just get my, my iPad to read it to me. You know, <laughs> well, well, I'm, uh, yeah, well, I'm cleaning the, the house or brushing my teeth, I just push read and then it reads it. So, so we're getting lazier and lazier. We don't have to calculate anything because there's calculators. Uh, uh, Wikipedia tells you every useless piece of knowledge that you could possibly want. Uh, you have to spell, you can just... You know, Wiktionary will tell you the, the uh, how to spell things. So uh, we might be going back to the non-literate <laughs> stage. Well, the, the um, higher virtue, higher mind, and higher wisdom. So that uh, that, um, anyway, perfection in virtue, perfection. Um, you know, there's a that. That that's the the aim, or what you're you're building your practice around is um, these qualities: the virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Even though that the um, that you're remembering that those are the trainings, even if you haven't accomplished them, particularly in the the concentration and and wisdom. So that uh, as he uh, as he points out, there needs to be for stream entry. There needs to be the the sila needs to be well polished. Uh, the fact that one can't concentrate that well or one is not necessarily that wise is not the crucial element. Sudanta. Uh, did every single rule originate from the Buddha? Uh, that's what we are told. And so, um, they, because they were all established within the Buddha's lifetime, the, the, the way the Patimoka was, was uh, put together, it was um, rather than the Buddha sitting down and writing a whole code, rather, Unlike sort of Napoleonic law, where like Napoleon sort of just wrote a whole code of law from scratch, it's much more of a piecemeal, like the sort of the, the British um, legal system, where it's uh, case by case by case. Uh, when a when a situation arose, then the Buddha established a principle. Um, so uh, apparently, seemingly, then uh, the um, all of those training rules were established in the Buddha's lifetime. It was a, uh, he was teaching for forty-five years, so there was an awful lot of stuff happened. Uh, and when you uh, the uh, the reading the Vinaya texts is quite a window into the sort of kind of crazy things. You think the the monks and nuns that you live with nowadays like incredibly well behaved, <laughs> very you know, sane, good-hearted, level-headed, wise, kind, thoughtful. And, and when you read the Vinaya, it's like. These people are nuts. <laughs> what the hell are they thinking? Yeah. 
that one uh, Ajahn, uh, because uh, there was a, he was trying to scold a novice for misbehaving, cut his ears off <laughs> just to teach him a lesson. And uh, so the Buddha said, um, monks, it is not allowable to cut the ears off a novice. Just <laughs> It is a wrongdoing. It should not be done to cut the ears off a novice. It's only a dukkha, yeah. It's, it's, only, it's like a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's on the same level as tickling. So, but uh, it's one of Ajahn Pasano's favorite offenses. He would point out when he was the Ajahn at Wat Pananacha, also at the Bhagiri, he'd point out, you know, it's only a dukkha to cut the ears off a novice. <laughs> Nowadays, you get slung in jail for a decade at least if you did it. But uh, no, don't worry, Venerable. Your ears are safe. <laughs> Venerable Balada looked very strange without ears. <laughs> so, to carry on. A partial accomplishment in concentration and wisdom is still enough to take one to a clear vision of the Dhamma. Even a partial attainment, that is, stream entry, is sufficient to lay the foundation for understanding the true nature of things and to begin to realize the transcendent fruits of practice. An example of this is when Sariputta first received a brief teaching from Asaji, one of the original five disciples of the Buddha. So uh, at this point, Sariputta is a wanderer. He's a, 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 a monk, but he's not a disciple of the Buddha. Um, and he's just seen uh, Venerable Asaji uh, walking on his arms around through the town and has just been very... Um, inspired or impressed by his demeanor and his sort of peacefulness. So he went uh, up to Venerable Asaji and said, Who are you, friend? You know, where, where do you come from? Who's your teacher? What, what kind of practice do you do? And then Venerable Asaji had um, uh, sort of spoken with him, and Sariputta asked for a, for a teaching, and then Venerable Asaji gave him uh, this uh, short teaching. And um, uh, on the... Uh, all, he said, "All things that have a uh, the, all things that have a cause, the great monk, the Mahasamana, the, the, the Buddha has spoken of uh, the nature of the cause and also how they come to cessation." And then, when Sariputta heard that, then he became a stream enterer on the spot. And this is just after that occasion, and so he's gone back and is re um, uh, reunited with his friend Moggallana, who was also a wanderer in the wanderer in the same group as, uh, as Sariputta. Now when the wanderer Sariputta heard this statement of the Dhamma, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Sariputta went to Moggallana, the wanderer. Moggallana, the wanderer, saw him coming. He said, Your faculties are serene, friend. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Is it possible that you have found the deathless? Yes, friend, I have found the deathless. This seeing of the deathless is the, quote, uncommon knowledge, unquote, mentioned in one of the later sections, and, is, uh, and it is an essential aspect to the Sotapati experience. Insight into the nature of the goal gives one the confidence and clarity to practice correctly as one's vision is now unclouded. And then this next uh, passage is from the uh, Nidanavaga, the Connected Discourses on um, Causation uh, to uh, Venerable Savita. Friend Savita, apart from faith, apart from personal preference, apart from oral, oral tradition, apart from reasoned reflection, apart from acceptance of a view after pondering it, 
I know this and I see this. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Then the Venerable Narada is an arhat, one whose taints are destroyed. So this is a, a number of monks who have come together and they're sort of asking each other about their level of understanding. And so um, <coughs> Narada is the monk who's speaking, and so he says to his friend Savita, Friend Savita, uh, apart from faith, apart from personal preference, apart from oral, tra oral tradition, apart from reasoned reflection, apart from acceptance of a view after pondering it, I know this, I see this. Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Pavani Rodo Nibbana. Then uh, the um, uh, Venerable Savita says, Then Venerable Narada is Narahant, one whose taints are destroyed. And uh, then uh, Narada says, Friend, though I have clearly seen as it really is, with correct wisdom, Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. I am not Narahant, one whose taints are destroyed. Suppose, friend, there was a well, along a desert road, but it had neither a rope nor a bucket. Then a man would come along, oppressed and afflicted by heat, tired, parched and thirsty. He would look down into the well, and the knowledge would occur to him, there is water. But he would not be able to make it, he would not be able to make bodily contact with it. So too, friend, though I have clearly seen it as it really is, with correct wisdom, Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. I am not an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed. So these, these passages are relating to this uh, uh, experience of stream entry or the, 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 that uh, uh, seeing of the deathless, that first uh, level of, of awakening. And so that there is this uh, uh, quality of certainty that the mind has gone beyond that. I've seen the, what the truth is. I've seen what the reality is. But it hasn't been uh, embodied yet. It hasn't been fully realized yet. But there's no doubt that this is... Uh, this is the truth and this is the, the way to go. So when we talk about getting beyond doubt, in the, in the next chapter there's, um, it goes into that uh, somewhat, then that, the doubt that has got beyond, it's not doubt about what you're going to, uh, you know, what socks you should put on this morning or what you're going to eat for breakfast. But it's doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. So that, that um, this quality of seeing of the deathless or that uh, as in this dialogue between venerable Narada and Venerable Savita is like he's seen that Bhavani Rodo Nibbanang that Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Then that is there's no doubt. Okay, that's that's the important thing. That's what uh, that's what uh, the the mind uh, needs to awaken to. It hasn't been reached yet. And the image of the the well, you can see the water there. We haven't got a bucket. We haven't got a rope. So the water is definitely there, but it's not uh, it's not reachable. Then um, it uh, uh, it is so beyond doubt. There's there's no lack of certainty about the the, the fact that water is there. It is uh, reachable, but it hasn't been reached yet. So also in terms of the um, aspects of of not needing um, fully developed concentration or wisdom, oftentimes in the later scriptures that the experiences of enlightenment are, are spoken of in very um, sort of exalted ways or that the mind is in deep concentration and such like um, but when you read the accounts again from the Terigata, Terigata like I was saying there was this nun who was sitting up in a tree with a rope around her neck ready to hang herself when she became an arahant um, Sariputta was, was fanning the Buddha he was like standing behind the Buddha you know, you know, keeping him cool with a fan and the Buddha was giving a Dhamma talk to somebody else and Sariputta hearing the Dhamma talk became an arahant 
while the Buddha was talking to, to Diganaka. And so that was, that was two weeks after his ordination as a monk. He was pretty quick to learn. <laughs> Mogulan only took one week. Sariputta took two. But he, was, he wasn't in a state of jhana. He was just like standing there, you know, fanning the mosquitoes away from the Buddha and keeping him cool. So also this, um, uh, this passage to Savita in um, the Nidana Vaga, it's, it's also uh, it, it, um, it's similar to the dialogue with Venerable Kemaka. Uh, and he was uh, 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 among the, in his old age and uh, <clears throat> the, it's also in the Sanyutta Nikaya, it's in section 22, Sutta number 89, that the um, Kemaka Sutta. And similarly, uh, he's very old and his, his friends want to know whether he's, uh, and he's quite sickly, it doesn't seem like he's going to live much longer, and his friends want to know, well, have you finished your practice? Have you reached Arahantship? And the, whole, the, fir- the first part of the Sutta is this sort of going back and forth, sending messages to ask him how his practice is and trying to communicate. And eventually he gets up and goes to see these other people in the monastery and say, and then talks to them and to, to say how uh, his practice is, has taken shape. And he uses very, very uh, a fine image of a flower. He says uh, that even though uh, <clears throat> uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that the body is not self and that feelings, perceptions... Mental formations and consciousness are not are not self. They're not who and what I am. Uh, still, I have not reached arahantship. I still have uh, there's still the aspects of, of identification and clinging. So just like with a flower, whether it's a red or white or a blue lotus, you can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't really say whether the fragrance comes from the the petals or from the uh, the, the stamens or the pistils or the the, the uh, what part of the flower. The, the scent comes from, but yet the scent is there. So he said, I, and I look through the, the body, of feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, I can't, there's no, no particular piece that, that the uh, I am is attached to or identified with, but yet this feeling of I am still hovers around, like the, the scent of the flower is there. And, um, and uniquely, Venerable Kemaka, as his, so he was giving this talk to 60 of his friends, uh, and so he's explaining how he's not enlightened, but both they and he become arahants during the course of this explanation. <laughs> so he has the unique, the, and the sister, so Sister Kemika has the same name. The unique, uh, uh, I think the, it's the only one, only instance in the in the suttas where the, uh, <clears throat> someone becomes an arahant hearing their own dhamma talk. <laughs> So, not that we expect anything of you. No pressure, sister. <laughs> but um, it's also how uh, the, the way that the Dhamma teachings take shape. You know, that if you're speaking spontaneously, then things can occur to you as you're speaking that you've never realized before, or you've never seen things that way before. And so, uh, insight can be arising as you're speaking. And so, Venerable Kemaka did indeed become a, an arahant while he was giving that explanation. So that's the end of chapter 16, and then chapter 17 uh, is um, simply called uh, Sotapanna, the Spiritual Turning Point, Section 2. And uh, it starts off with exploring what is seen. But before we go on with that, any uh, particular thoughts or questions about those uh, last passages from the end of that previous chapter?
So what is seen? The moment of stream entry is often called the arising of the Dhamma eye, the Dhamma chaku. In light of the analogy at the end of the last chapter, what is it that is seen at the bottom of the well? And uh, we have a, a uh, quote from the Diganikaya, the Long Discourses, Sutta number 5, and this is Maurice Walsh's translation. And just as a clean cloth from which all stains have been removed receives the dye perfectly, so in the Brahmin Kuta Adanta, as he sat there, there arose the pure and spotless Dhamma eye, and he knew, whatever things have an origin must come to cessation. Then Kuta Adanta, having seen, attained, experienced, and penetrated the Dhamma, having passed beyond doubt, transcended uncertainty, having gained perfect confidence in the teacher's doctrine without relying on others. There are a few different ways of phrasing this experience in the discourses, but this is probably the most common. That is, um, whatever things have an origin must come to cessation. Because it's so prevalent as a description, we should look at other translations of the same verse. Different translators are able to highlight different aspects of the same material. Moreover, when considering such an important concept as the entering of the stream of Dhamma, it can be particularly useful to view things from another angle. And so then the same image, but from Sutta number 56 in the Majima, uh, is then uh, they're quoted. The first one is translated by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi, and then the second translation is done by Bhikkhu Tanisaro. Just as a clean cloth with all marks removed would take dye evenly, so too, while the householder Upali sat there, the spotless immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Then the householder Upali saw the Dhamma, attained the Dhamma, understood the Dhamma, fathomed the Dhamma. He crossed beyond doubt, did away with perplexity, gained intrepidity, and became independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. So intrepidity might be an unfamiliar word. Um, that means uh, certainty or fearlessness, uh, a sense of assurance. Uh, so self-confidence, self-reliance, all those uh, things. But, uh, uh, often when we, in the, in the ordinary use of English, we say intrepid, be more like um, an explorer going off into the wilderness or, or a, um, a group of soldiers charging into battle. Um, so it's a bit of an unusual word to use in terms of uh, spiritual qualities, but uh, it, it's, it's certainly valid, but it's... Uh, <clears throat> has that sense of of, of strength, certainty, self-reliance, um, courage, and uh, assurance, self-assurance. So then Bhikkhu Tanisaro's translation of the same passage is, To Upali the householder, as he was sitting right there, there arose the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Then, having seen the Dhamma, having reached the Dhamma, known the Dhamma, reached a footing in the Dhamma, having crossed over and beyond doubt, having had no more questioning, Upali, the householder, gained fearlessness and was independent of others with regard to the teacher's message. So uh, Ajahn Tanisra has fearlessness there as intrepidity. So there's different translations. So as Maurice Walsh had, whatever things have an origin must come to cessation. Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, Bhikkhu Bodhi had... um, 
all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And then Bhikkhu Tanisaro has um, whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Then uh, Ajahn Pasano carries on. Here, the key factor in turning away from the stream of the world and entering the stream of Dhamma is the insight into impermanence, along with the seeing of a causal connection between all phenomena. We can recognize that the truth of seeing, quote, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation, unquote, is not beyond our own or anybody else's capabilities. Having made this point, the discourse goes on to describe the results, first being the transcending of doubt and uncertainty. Due to the different nature of the English and Pali languages, there are difficulties in translation that may obscure crucial aspects of the Dhamma. If we translate the stream-entry vision literally from the Pali, we have something like whatever, arising Dhamma, cessation Dhamma. <laughs> so the Pali is yankinchi samudaya dhammang sabantang niroda dhammanti. So the, the English would be whatever, arising Dhamma, cessation Dhamma. This is terrible English, but beautiful insight. English grammar requires subject and verb. Thus, something arises and ceases. Hence, Dhamma comes across as a thing or an attribute of things. A thing has existence in time, so whatever thing arises or is subject to arising subsequently ceases. This is not really news to the reflective mind. However, if we consider stream entry as something profound, it will be useful to consider the experience to be one in which the very process that brings things, quote-unquote, to awareness, is seen into. That is, the mind is experiencing an event stream, quote-unquote, dynamic, uh, sorry, the mind is experiencing an event stream dynamic of arising and ceasing that rules out substantiality. It's like writing in water. The experiences of arising and ceasing occupying the same time frame. In this light, perhaps a better rendering would be whatever is experienced as arising is experienced as ceasing, or any experience of arising is an experience of ceasing, the enigmatic ring of which may alert the reader to the profundity of the experience. So this is uh, this is a, a, um, a very significant point, and I think he puts it extremely well. It does, it's the kind of passage that you have to read two or three times to uh, maybe get, get the point exactly. But um, the, uh, the different elements of it are such that, so whatever arises passes away, whatever begins ends, what goes up must come down. It's in terms of, of an ordinary perception, a three-year-old child can, can understand that. that, uh, that and so that Oh yeah, right. Yeah, what goes up must come down. Yeah, so that there's a, a and the Buddha starts off with that, which is a very accessible and natural perception as a starting point for wisdom. But uh, and in the Anattalakana Sutta, he, he that's what he starts off with is, is anicca. So form the body, material objects. Do they change or do they not change? So like right, things change. Yeah, material things. We can see that all the time. There's no thing that's a, a material thing that doesn't change. Okay, so it's a very accessible uh, quality on a, on a worldly level. But then the point that uh, Ajahn Pasano is making is how the, <clears throat> particularly with the language, that the mind uh, 
likes to think in terms of things. And the word dhamma, you know, with a small d, dhamma means a phenomenon or a thing, uh, a mental or physical, um, uh, of, of all kinds. Um, and so there's a kind of solidif solidification, a, a concretization or reification. You know, the mind makes uh, 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 a, uh, a thing that has begun that then persists and then dissolves. That's what uh, our, our normal perception. This is a book. This is a clock. This is a building. Yeah. And so that we, we create the world of things, a thing in itself, that we say, oh, that there is this bookness or this buildingness or this clockness, uh, this, this chairness. But the, the point that is, in a sense, the essence of the insight is that, uh, and I think that, that Ajahn Pasno makes uh, very, uh, very clear or, or illuminates here, is that the mind is experiencing an event stream dynamic of arising and ceasing that rules out substantiality. So it's the mind that says, oh, this is just chairing. The elements of, of wood have come together from trees and it's put together and it's, at the moment it's chairing, but it, it can't possibly do that forever. It's, in a, it's a process. It's, as you said, it's an event stream, which I think is a really great term for that. And as he says, the, um, <coughs> the arising, uh, any experience of arising is an experience of ceasing. So that in the very, so rather than saying, oh, there's this thing, it kind of came from somewhere and it's going to turn into something else, but it really is a chair right now. That's its main thing, is it, it is a chair. And so it's sort of tweaking that and say, well, yes and no. And that, uh, and it's so putting it into the much bigger context of this, the, the wood that, that makes this chair grew up out of the ground as trees and that they were cut down and carved up and made into this form and at the moment it's chairing and but eventually it will stop chairing it'll, it'll, it will uh, change into different forms whatever they might be and so that that uh, what makes us the insight that is then liberating is that recognizing in a way it's it's not just that all, whatever goes up must come down whatever begins ends as a sort of fact of the material world or, or the change of changing nature of experience it's in a way in a sense what what makes it the liberating insight or the entry point to to wisdom and stream entry is that in a sense the heart getting the implications of that or well, if that's true what does that say about this body this mind this thought this feeling this opinion this sense of i and me and mine oh that changes everything because we we're uh changing the way that any thing is being held or being seen that it's as a, a part of a of a process and so that it's the the, the insight um, into anicca is that sense uh, is built around that sense of insubstantiality as he points out is the the um, the uh, the mind is experiencing an event, an event stream dynamic of arising and ceasing that rules out substantiality, so that the the implications of that somehow soak through to our bones or to our jitta. Oh, well, that that's that that really makes things very different in terms of how I relate to this mind, this body, these people, this place, this, this life, this story. This oh, oh, right, huh. 
and uh, and so it's also you know, the 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 insight that is is liberating, and uh, and also it seems so simple uh, on the outside, uh, whatever is subject to arising is subject to, to cessation, but when the full implications of that are felt, then it it touches it touches everything literally. And uh, as I was mentioning the other day, that uh, for a number of years, Lumpur Sumedha used to uh, come up with this theme in his his teachings uh, and dialogues with people. He'd say, what is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? And so put that as a question. What is it that Buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know? And you assume that, oh, well, Buddhas have this kind of massively comprehensive knowledge. They understand you know, all the natures of natures of all living beings and the workings of karma and the the, the nature of you know, every fine detail of mental activity and and uh, they know all the leaves in the forest you know buddhas know that so that's the kind of the implication what is it that buddhas know and then he would uh, pause for a moment and say what buddhas know that unenlightened beings don't know is that all that arises passes away and is not self so oh so it's a deliberate, a deliberate letdown. It's like because you're thinking oh, it's going to be wow, a sort of super duper you know, cosmic knowledge, but it's all that arises passes away. Like so, and so it seems like nothing. But when you when when you let that insight really soak through the whole system, then it's, it points to the insubstantiality of your body, your personality, your parents, your children, your ajans, your students, your friends, your beloved places, your country, your nationality, your age, your gender, your human condition, the realms of existence, uh, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, everything. <laughs> it, it, it changes the way the mind creates the world of things. And so that it's, um, it was a, a you know, brilliant and skillful teaching. That's what Buddhas know. It's, like, it's not much, it doesn't seem like much, but like a a key going into a lock. It's not a very big thing, but if the right key goes in the right lock, then, oh, you can get through the door and see what's on the other side. So to continue a little bit, this would also result in a direct understanding of dependent arising. That is, of a reality not of things existing in a void, but a dynamic of forces, currents and tendencies. There is no void. The, quote, unconditioned Dhamma, unquote, some texts allude to, is the experience of an awareness that doesn't support or give rise to conditions. Okay, I'll read that again. This would also result in a direct understanding of dependent arising. <coughs> that is, of a reality, not of things existing in a void, but a dynamic of forces, currents and tendencies. There is no void. The unconditioned Dhamma, some texts allude to, is the experience of an awareness that doesn't support or give rise to conditions. So that uh, there, it's not saying there's like a, a background of a void that dependent rising is occurring in, but everything, the whole field of experience is, is that of uh, you know, the arising and ceasing. Seeing the true nature of phenomena in this way, with penetrative insight opens the heart to seeing beyond the phenomena to knowledge of liberation. And then uh, there's a quote from again from the Nidana, the Connected Discourses on Causation. First, Susima, comes knowledge of the stability of Dhamma. Afterwards, 
knowledge of Nibbana. So as he points out that there is no void, meaning, uh, I think last time or the time before, is saying that in the, in the southern Buddhist world, the concept of emptiness or sunya, uh, sunyata, is it's a relative concept. It's not, there's no idea of an absolute void or an absolute nothingness that things happen in, but rather um, you know, when we use the word sunya, empty, it's empty of something, so, and usually empty of self and what belongs to a self, empty of, of, um, of uh, substantiality or per, you know, empty of uh, you know, permanent essence. And so that then, um, the, in a way, the, the stability of the Dhamma, what's always present, is the Dhamma itself. And so it's a, a very interesting and useful quotation. First Susima comes the knowledge of the stability of Dhamma, as Dhamma Tittata, like uh, the uh, establishment of the Dhamma, or the, 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 uh, uh, the groundedness of the Dhamma, and afterwards knowledge of Nibbana. So that the, um, the field of experience, the, the basis of experience is the, uh, and uh, reality is the Dhamma itself. And that the Dhamma has these qualities of of um, stability and also lawfulness. So there's a, a passage in again in the um, in the Nidana Vaga Sutra number twenty. Yeah, Sutra number twenty in the um, uh, connected discourses about causation, where the Buddha says whether a Tathagata arises in the universe or not, there is this uh, there is this um, reliability of the Dhamma, the stability of the Dhamma, the lawfulness of the Dhamma. Dhamma tittata, dhamma niyamata. There's this reality, whether there's a, a Buddha, a, an awakened being in the world or not, whether that awareness arises or not, there is this lawfulness of the way that the natural order functions. There is this, there things are established in dhamma, dhamma tittata. They follow the laws of, of that reality. They follow the laws of nature, dhamma niyamata. So that, that, um, the, uh, that sense of uh, there is that lawfulness or that orderliness uh, of the way that reality works, and then when when the mind attunes to that and knows that uh, and embodies that, then that gives rise to the experience of nibbana. So nibbana is a description of the experience of the mind awakening to that orderliness, that stability, that that uh, reality of dhamma. Human life is often characterized by the uncertainty of what is truly, quote-unquote, good or truly, quote-unquote, right. There are many pundits and experts willing to expand their views, and many people are willing to try to believe them, but still doubts linger. Stream enterers have gained confidence in the Buddha's doctrine not because they are trying to believe or are forced to believe, but because they have seen for themselves. The independence and freedom of not having to rely on others is precious. It's not arrived at through a stubborn and rigid upholding of a view or position, but through a clear penetration of direct experience through the light of discernment. In order for the mind to penetrate truth, seeing will accord with right view. The view in accordance with Dhamma is the dominant factor in facilitating a clear penetration. The Buddha praises and encourages right view in many places in the canon. So before we get on to these next quotes, if there's any thoughts, questions, 
reflections? James, yes. It's just to do with the actual perception of arising and passing away. Rather than it being a, a sort of conceptual understanding of, like you say, sharing, I thought it was more a direct sort of experience that everything in your your experience is always arising and passing away. Very, you're seeing that everything is changing mm -hmm. all the time, like directly rather than in, with an intellectual. Yeah, so that that, that that's the the way that that um, ripens. But the, it starts off as an intellectual appreciation. Like, that's sort of the first, when the Buddha says, um, yeah, material form, is it permanent or impermanent? It's a question. Yeah. So it's like it starts off with that. Okay, do things, do things change? Rupang, ani changwa, ani changwa di. Are they permanent or are they impermanent? So it's, it starts off with an intellectual appreciation, and then as that is sort of. Uh, uh, sort of allowed in, and, and the the insight and understanding develops. Then it it becomes more and more of that what you're describing that sort of felt experience of of the um, the uh, uh, event stream, as it were, rather than thing a, a thing beginning and ending, but that that flow of of experiencing. So that would be the actual. Insight that would need to be the direct experience rather than the thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the but and then the well, there's the seeing, and then there's the insight is the change of heart that comes from having seeing things in that way. It's like oh, oh, like the 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 attitude changes. The 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 way the mind relates to experience shifts. So that the insight, so that in a way, it's like I often talk about vipassana as like insight as a sort of technique, like reflecting, this is impermanent, this is unsatisfactory, this is not self. So there's the vipassana, which is the sort of meditation method. And then there's the real vipassana, the real insight, which is the change of heart that comes from seeing. Oh, how could that belong to anybody? How can any being own anything, oh, oh. So that change of heart, that uh, that like the, the shift in the attitude is the 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 genuine insight. So the the method is only like the ex or like the raising the thought. All that arises passes away. It's just a thought. Or it's like applying a method. Oh, this is anicca dukkha anatta. So the method is one thing, but then the the act the change of heart is is the real essence of it. Yes, I think you the pilot, you had a question. Slightly different. Yeah. Often someone writes this, I think it's called famous challenging, it's philosophy. It's to see the philosophy is already broken. Mm -hmm. And what I find so fascinating is that it's a sort of changing realization of what you think it is. Time-connected moments, or, or that shakes, you know, all the mm -hmm. and, um, Yeah, it takes, takes us beyond the, the reality of form. It doesn't speak about process, but it takes time off. 
Yeah, he, well, he's a, he's very um, skilled in that way of, of using a very sort of practical example. And when when he first would do that, he say, you know, "If you can see this glass is already broken, then you won't suffer." And I used to think, "I can't see any cracks." You know? <laughs> <laughs> to, how's how's the water not leaking out of it if it's already broken? <laughs> it took a it took a while to get the point, but but uh, yeah, it's it's a very skillful way of phrasing that. Um, because it can sound kind of technical or theoretical, so you know everything is impermanent. It's, it seems like you're sort of talking about that stuff over there. But but if, if you can see this glass is broken already, it's like a, it's almost like well, wait a minute, how could I see that? Because it's not broken yet, and uh, so it it makes it much more of a tangible, uh, uh, tangible experience, and that uh, it really brings it home. The other aspect of it that he would also use it, he would tend to use the word uh, uncertainty, mainer, like, uh, as a, a way of reflecting and developing the, the investigation of anicca. Because when we talk about something as being impermanent, maitiang, like it, it's, it's like an object, it's out there, that, that thing is changing. Even if it's a, a thing in our, in our mind, you know, like a thought or a, a mood. It can. It still sort of externalizes it as a. Uh, it's an object that's, that's changing. So it's almost like a, a kind of technical quality that it has. But uh, so it's on the object side of experience. But he would more often than not talk about developing the insight into anicca through the subject side. Like when the when the mind experiences things changing, it doesn't know what it's going to change into. There's uncertainty. And so that he would more often use that. Yeah, mainer, mainer as the 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 way of characterizing anicca, because that's the felt sense of of, of impermanence. Is I don't know what's going. To, I don't know what this is going to change into. I don't know who's going to ask a question. I don't know what the question's going to be. I don't know what's going to happen with this evening. I don't know. Nobody does. It's uncertain, and so the felt sense of uh, of change is uncertainty. And uh, so, I mean, it's hard to put, I mean, I wasn't around him that much, but I would say, uh, so three quarters of the time, he would talk about uh, uncertainty, and a quarter of the time about about uh, impermanence or just change. That The majority would be the the, the personal feeling of, of, uh, of uh, not knowing what's going to happen next, or not, or not being sure about your judgments. Like to, when the mind says, this is good, that's bad, this is right, that's wrong, then to, to use that uncertainty, so is that a sure thing? Rather than saying, oh, this judgment is changing. You know, you know, la, uh, and, and so, which makes it more like an external object. It's like uh, <clears throat> that sense of, uh, is that a sure thing? Are you sure about that? Then it brings it to the subject side of the equation, as it were. Yes, Shelley Ann. Uh, you mentioned a short while ago the use of the word intrepidity. Yes. And um, it made me think of the term warrior mentality, which you find in Zen teaching. Could you, could you equate the two? Yes, I think so. The, um, the, they also talk about that in the, the forest tradition quite a lot, the, the, the warrior heart that uh, is not put off by difficulty or the threat of imminent destruction. 
but just is ready to to uh, meet the difficulties that uh, that life will th- will uh, will present, so that um, the uh, that sense of um, courage, uh, bravery, and uh, the readiness to to meet with difficulty is anyone. I've never been a soldier, uh, but <clears throat> I got a dishonorable discharge from my school. Army Corps, <laughs> a very short military career I had, to, but uh, from uh, my understanding of the the that the military world is that you have to uh, deliberately go against a lot of reasoning. Like, well, wait, well, what's going to happen? Or I'm not sure about that. You know, like, no, you obey orders, you go, and you kind of go into that because if you think about all the stuff that might happen, you'd never do your job as a soldier. You'd never, you know, deal with the the the, the conflict that's, that's sort of required of the situation. So that that intrepidity, uh, um, uh, or as Argentinistra had it as fearlessness, that's a that's a um, a kind of uh, aspect of the attitude. That uh, because fear is also. There's, to a degree, it's based around the sense of self. Uh, what I'm going to lose, what what's going, what what of mine is going to be harmed, challenged, lost, offended, upset. It's about me, and so that then that uh, intrepidity or fearlessness is like, well, that's all very well, but you can sit over there because you know the, we've got to we've got to charge. We've got to go into the unknown, and you know, and it doesn't. Uh, whether or not a certain number of us are going to get wiped out, we have to go anyway. And so that uh, that that kind of readiness to go against um, self-preservation or caution is uh, is talked about a lot in the forest tradition of of, uh, dealing with the mind's desires, fears, um, readiness to meet those challenges so that the Dutanga practices that they, the, which characterize the forest tradition of the allowable ascetic practices like just eating one meal a day or um, just having three robes to wear or not lying down to sleep at night or just living on the alms food that you're given by strangers and the people in the, in the village. Yeah. Then <clears throat> they're all ways that the Buddha allowed to challenge your, your attachment to comfort, sleep, food... <laughs> Yeah, all reptile brain stuff, you know, the personal space that it goes right at those instinctual. Uh, well, I want to be comfy. I don't want to be cold. I want to. I want to eat. Yeah. <laughs> I want to sleep. And so that the all the, the allowable dutangas they they're aimed at you know, food, sleep, comfort, personal space, and things that the 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 self has a strong ins- instinctual attachment to. So. That the the Dutanga practices are designed to help go against that. Say, okay, well, maybe you'll get some nice things to eat, put in your bowl today, and maybe you won't. You don't know. And their readiness to go, like you know, going off on the arms round to Berkhamsted. Okay, well, last time I came, my bowl was really full. It's a bit kind of cold and rainy today. How many people? How many people are going to be out shopping today? I'm not sure. 
So they, they keep going. Should I turn back? You know, my foot's feeling a little bit strange. Maybe I should. <laughs> I might not make it all the way back. Or maybe, if I make it all the way there, I might not, might not be able to walk back. You know, I think I better. If I, no, just keep going. But speaking of keeping going, it's ten past seven. So I, just, I just wanted to sort of not forget about what you said about sunyata, you know, the, the, maybe the reference point. What you said about sunyata being um, linked with the, um, the mind that is not conditioning consciousness, that will not be conditioned. Mm-hmm. I just felt very comfortable with that. <laughs> you felt very comfortable. In a sense, of definition of sunni said it's not empty, it's not full, it's not empty. It's just sunyata in our tradition will be more like the aspect of not reconditioning. Yes, it's uh, Ajahn Pasna. He's quite. He writes in quite a dense way, so you have to read carefully because there's important things can just be see, the eye can slide over them. So what he says is. Um, uh, This would also result in a direct understanding of dependent arising. That is, of a reality, not of things existing in a void, but a dynamic of forces, currents and tendencies. There is no void. The unconditioned Dhamma, some texts allude to, is the experience of an awareness that doesn't support or give rise to conditions. (coughs) So it's at the top of page 295, if you want to look. And it's a kind of sentence you think, wait, 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 wait. Let me read that again. Because there's a lot in it, and he's not, he doesn't pad things like some people. And so that it's it can pay off to sort of read it over two or three times. There's a lot in that. But we'll leave it there for today at Susima.